Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 95. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on November 14th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, and glory. This episode's a sidebar, which is our term for an episode off the timeline, which I do occasionally when I come across something interesting or in recognition of a holiday, that sort of thing. As advertised to our listeners on Twitter and such, I went to Cuba for a week with a couple of college friends. Every couple of years, the three of us do a trip in, to some place that our wives have no real hankering to go. So this episode's about some things I saw and learned on that trip, plus a couple of stories from the history of American-Cuban relations, which are in the usual tradition of this podcast. Just to be clear up front on one point... We traveled to Cuba entirely within the requirements of the U.S. embargo, the longest-running sanctions regime imposed by the United States anywhere in the world. Travel had liberalized substantially under President Obama, who created a general exception for cultural exchange. Basically, you could come to Cuba legally and could substantiate your cultural exchange by writing a post on LinkedIn or a blog or presumably a podcast episode about the cultural stuff you learned in Cuba. And anyway, I'm sure many people didn't even bother to do even that. President Trump closed that easy exception, and that's one of his policy decisions that President Biden has not reversed. Now, the easiest exception to the sanctions for Americans who want to go to Cuba legally is, quote, support for the Cuban people. To meet this requirement, you have to spend at least six hours a day engaging with the Cuban people in the relatively new private businesses or even in their homes. As a practical matter, this means that you stay in Airbnb homes or apartments, eat in Hecho and Casa small restaurants, and do things a bit off the beaten path. Corporate hotels and other activities that support the Cuban state rather than the Cuban people are generally to be avoided, although you can certainly go smoke a cigar at the Hotel Nacional and that sort of thing. Put another way, Americans who come here in support of the Cuban people don't spend their time as the Russians, Europeans, and Canadians mostly do, which is lying on the beach and staying in the incredibly cheap, swanky hotels promoted by the Cuban government. This is just as well because those places require credit cards for almost everything, even stuff from the gift shop. And Americans can't use their credit cards in Cuba. We Americans have to arrive with a wad of cash. One would think that would make Americans easy targets for criminals. But this is a police state that has in recent years made a policy decision to promote tourism, which no doubt potential criminals will understand. I felt a lot safer in a seemingly sketchy neighborhood in Havana than a supposedly safe neighborhood in New Orleans, a town I know much better, even though in New Orleans I would not be instantly profiled for carrying a fat bankroll. 
It's not super easy to arrange a trip like this, but there are travel consultants in Cuba who can suggest things to do and see, find private guides and drivers, and recommend Airbnbs and private restaurants. For about $40 per day of travel and consulting charges, we were able to put together a detailed itinerary that met the requirements of U.S. law, created a record of all we did in the event that the Treasury Department ever audits our trip, and connected us with interesting people who spoke some English. Now, I should say up front that I think the U.S. sanctions regime has run its course, and my opinion is that we should open up full relations with Cuba. We deal with plenty of other countries that are at least as offensive from a human rights perspective, and that have fewer ties of family and culture to our own country. Even the cynical domestic political reason for the sanctions has fallen away now that Florida is not a swing state. But my opinion has not won the day. I would have thought that President Biden would see a benefit in liberalizing relations with Cuba, but I've also learned that I know very little about U.S. politics. So given that we have the sanctions, I confess that before I went to Cuba, I was irritated that President Obama's very liberal exception was no longer available and that we had to do it the more complicated way. Having now done it that way, I've changed my mind, though. As long as we and the Cubans live under the broader U.S. sanctions regime, the support for the Cuban people exception is great policy. For reasons I'll get into in a few minutes, the requirements of the exception actually do support the Cuban people, as opposed to the state, and in fact, are fairly subversive. Don't worry, this is not going to be a travelogue. I just want to pass along a few stories with the names changed to protect people who were open with us. First, a bit on the state of the Cuban economy and how it got to here. The Cuban revolution that brought Fidel Castro to power tossed out the previous guy, Fulgencia Batista, at the end of 1958. Batista certainly deserved to go. He'd run an oppressive military dictatorship, and the July 26 movement, the name Fidel put to his branch of the revolutionary movement, had been building support and fighting for more than five years. Among other crimes against decency, the unbelievably corrupt Batista had recruited the American mobster Meyer Lansky from Las Vegas and made him chief gaming officer. Lansky ran the casinos, and in return, Batista got 10 to 30% off the top every night. And by every night, I mean every night. The casinos would deliver bags of cash to Batista's resident every night after closing. Much of that money would make its way to Swiss bank accounts. Under Lansky's rule, Havana became Sin City, with drugs and prostitution on top of the gambling. It's estimated that in the 1950s, there were 270 bordellos in Havana. With Batista gone, Lansky went back to Las Vegas. It's fair to speculate that had there been no revolution, and had Lansky and Batista realized their grand plans for Havana... Vegas might never have become Vegas, for better or for worse. I happen to like Vegas, but your results may vary. Within a few years of Castro and his buddies taking control, they'd seized virtually all private assets in the country and imposed an old-school, Soviet-styled, planned economy. For the next 30 years, Cuba was a proxy of the Soviet Union and depended on it for massive subsidies. 
Eventually, almost everybody worked for the state, and the only people who lived well were high-level revolutionaries, as they called them. By the fall of the Soviet Union, 91% of Cuba's workforce was at least notionally employed by the state. Then the Soviet Union fell apart, the Cold War ended, and the financial support for Cuba was in jeopardy. Fidel's government was forced to loosen its grip on the economy, slightly. In 1992, the government permitted certain types of private businesses, tiny restaurants and bars, auto repair shops, that kind of thing. In Putin's time, the Russian Federation had provided some aid, seemingly below Cold War levels, in return for Cuban support and foreign relations, but the pressure to liberalize continued. In 2011, as the world was recovering from the global financial crisis, the government opened the economy up more allowing for bigger private businesses and the private ownership of property for the first time in 50 years. Press accounts report that the actual implementation of the 2011 reforms has been incomplete and very slow, but the effects are evident. The percentage of workers employed by the state has fallen from 92% in 1992 to 71% today. Notwithstanding those reforms, which steadily improved the material condition of the Cuban people until the pandemic, things are very tough for Cubans. The combination of the pandemic, which crushed tourism from Europe, and Russia's war on Ukraine, which has much diminished the post-war supply of Russian tourists, has shrunken the flow of hard currency into the country. And, of course, Russia doesn't have spare change lying around for nice-to-have subsidies to friendly but fundamentally non-strategic countries on the other side of the world. The result is that Cuban GDP may have fallen by as much as 30% since 2018, and both food and basic consumer goods have become very difficult to come by if you don't have U.S. dollars or euros to pay for them. The economy remains highly controlled, sometimes in the stupidest of ways. One of our guides had a small restaurant with a staff of seven. And according to him anyway, the government passed a bunch of new regulations requiring that any private businesses with more than three employees have a lawyer and an accountant. His response was to cut his staff back to three people and reduce his operating hours. Farming is sharecropping, and the government is the landlord. If you grow tobacco, which is a cash cow for Cuba, the government takes 90% of your crop without paying for it. Since nobody voluntarily works at a 90% marginal tax rate, farmers in designated tobacco regions are required to plant at least 30,000 plants each year, and inspectors come to count them. And you can't grow an illegal crop in some remote corner of your farm because the government controls the seeds and passes them out when it's time to plant. One of our guides arranged a visit to a tobacco farm. This involved hiking about a mile into a valley through woods and past tiny farms with families living in perhaps 500-square-foot cabins, many of which had been damaged by Hurricane Ian. The farmer had lost his main tobacco shed to Ian, but was already rebuilding using materials he and his sons had cut, none being available from the government. Being something of a troublemaker, I asked the farmer through our interpreting guide if he would plant more tobacco if he were allowed to keep all of it to sell. He looked at me like I was a moron and said, See, si, make more money. The government also takes 70% of the maize and about a third of 
less exportable crops such as taro, yucca, and tomatoes. If you live in a coffee region, the government takes a large percentage of that crop too. But if you live in a tobacco region but grow some coffee on the side, you can keep it for your own use or to sell it to friends. Since the farmers don't own their farms and the government takes a big percentage of what they grow, nobody has an incentive to invest. Our tobacco farmer is part of a 150-farm cooperative, which owns a total of one old tractor. Well, they all have to plow their fields at roughly the same time, so nobody uses the tractor. They plow with teams of yoked oxen. A son of our new friend was training one of his oxen to submit to a saddle and learn to be ridden like a horse. He thought that the tourist brought through by his guide friend would enjoy riding it. I'll put up a post on the blog with pictures, none of which involve me riding the ox. The pilgrims figured out that collective farming didn't work within a couple of years, and even the corporate tools making the decision at Jamestown sorted it out within 15 years. Needless to say, the Cuban sharecropping system is a device for social control rather than growing crops, and the government maintains it even when the shelves in the stores are bare, and Cubans have to line up like old Soviets when a shipment comes in. Individual farmers are allowed to keep small animals, goats and chickens and pigs, but the cows are owned by the state. They are tied up on long ropes so they can forage in uncultivated spaces between the farms. Severe penalties attach to anyone who kills a cow. We met a man who spent 16 years in prison for having done so. Now, living in Texas as I do, I appreciate taking a tough position on cattle rustling. But I'm not sure this was the same situation. The trick to living reasonably well in Cuba is to get your hands on hard currency, especially U.S. dollars, which are accepted everywhere except the state-owned resorts and tobacco shops. One obvious path to getting dollars is to work in businesses that involve contact with foreigners, and that depends on learning at least some English. If I were a young Cuban, I'd be learning English as fast as I could. The English speakers we met were self-taught, often from watching videos, presumably with subtitles. None of our guides and translators worked in state enterprises. They'd all gone on their own, scrounging a living from doing various different things. One of our tour guides, I'll call him Juan for this purpose, had given up his state job a few years ago and was earning a living giving tours, selling homemade cigars, fixing motorcycles, and generally bobbing and weaving through the complicated economy. Juan had a house on a small plot of now private land. It had been owned by his grandfather, then confiscated, then returned. With an awesome view of mountains and a valley, and he had been building a guest room to rent to foreigners on Airbnb. Sadly, Hurricane Ian had done huge damage to his very modest house, so now he was rebuilding it before he could get back to the new guest room. Juan told a story, a chilling one. One of his neighbors thought it was wrong for Juan to quit working for the state. So he or she called the police and accused Juan of illegal activity. The police showed up in the middle of the night and tossed the whole house looking for any evidence of wrongdoing. Juan stayed out of jail, but he said it was the scariest night of his life. I can imagine. 
One of the weird but unsurprising things about Cuba is their acute concern that people do not leave without permission. We sailed past immigration on the way in with a big smile on a welcome to Cuba from the officer who took digital pictures while he scrutinized passports. On the way out, it was an entirely different matter. The officers called up the old picture and compared it to you and spent several minutes searching through databases. Countries that care so much about unauthorized departures are not good places to live. This was reflected in a story told by another guide who was thrilled that his daughter had gotten a job in the Persian Gulf region. She had learned excellent English, giving tours, and was admitted to an oil shakedom for the important job of waiting tables. Labor shortage in those countries. I asked the man if he could choose between his daughter coming back to Cuba or making her way to the United States and never seeing her again. Which would he prefer? He said the second. As a dad myself, I have to say that my eyes watered a bit hearing that. Imagine having to face that choice, imposed by your own government. All in all, we far exceeded the required six hours a day in support of the Cuban people. Much as I think that our policy toward Cuba has run its course, and by the way, we seem to be missing a golden opportunity to pull Cuba from the Russian orbit while the bear is distracted in Ukraine, the policy does mean that Americans travel in Cuba differently from Europeans and Canadians. No lying on the beaches sipping mojitos for the Yankees. If we follow our own country's rules in good faith, we are committed to meeting the Cubans where they are, if you will. Or at least, in my case, the Cubans who speak at least rudimentary English and are interested in speaking with foreigners. And how were we received? Everyone was very nice. We encountered none of the old anti-imperialist revolutionary ideology. For the Cubans we met, the conflict between our two countries was just a thing between governments, not the people. I learned lots of small and interesting things. One of them is that the island really is covered with classic American cars dating from the 1950s, more than I actually expected, frankly. The nicest of them have been refitted with air conditioning and Toyota motors, but no seatbelts. And if owned by entrepreneurial sorts, they work as taxis. There are also many old cars that people just own, including old Soviet and European cars that I, at least, had barely heard of. The other thing I learned is that apparently you're not supposed to grind out a cigar. It has to be left to, quote, die with honor. I like that tradition. I've squashed my last cigar. Not our usual fare, but I hope interesting enough for you. As promised, now for a story of American-Cuban relations from the 19th century. My main source for this is a very interesting book published a couple of years ago by Ada Ferrer, Cuba, an American History. I highly recommend it, and there's a link in the show notes in the episode post on the website, as usual. This story begins, as it so often does, with geography. One look at a map of today's United States and the surrounding territories suggests the obvious, that Cuba is not only the key to controlling the Gulf of Mexico, but it's an ideal base from which to launch attacks on North America. In the abstract, those attacks might come as Spanish galleons or Soviet medium-range missiles, and anything in between. In the concrete, Cortes launched his invasion of Mexico from Cuba, 
and long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that Panfilo de Navais and Hernando de Soto both launched their invasions of the American Southeast from Cuba. Control of Cuba not only protects or creates geopolitical leverage over the United States, it is, or at least was, essential to trade with Mexico, which for much of North American history was far more important to Spain and the rest of the world than anything in the future United States. As a result, the English and then the British, and finally the Americans, coveted Cuba and repeatedly attempted to control it. They succeeded twice for short periods. In 1762, the British conquered Havana and eventually got control of the island in the waning months of the Seven Years' War. The siege of Havana was a five-month affair. Disease and fighting cost both sides many lives, and the siege only ended after North Americans arrived from the soon-to-be United States. The British occupation was short-lived, however. Other British, who did not do the fighting and dying part, traded it back to Spain in return for most of Florida at the Treaty of Paris the next year. The United States also got control of Cuba, jumping into the Cuban War of Independence at the last minute. Remember the main. The United States took the credit for having liberated Cuba from Spain and occupied the country from 1898 to 1902. This led to a huge amount of resentment on both sides, insofar as the Cubans believed that they were on the brink of victory after 35 years of almost nonstop resistance to Spain. And Americans believed that Cubans should be more grateful to us for finally winning the war on their behalf. Because so many Americans thought we had paid for Cuban independence with American lives, Congress insisted that we extract fairly abusive concessions, including the land at Guantanamo Bay, to end the occupation in 1902. Because so many Cubans thought that they'd earned their independence fair and square, Resentment over those concessions would play a big part in Cuban politics for two generations and even reverberate today. If I live long enough, I'll almost certainly tell that story in detail. But it will no doubt take us years to cover the roughly 260 years between our current high watermark on the timeline and Teddy Roosevelt storming San Juan Hill. So don't hold your breath. All of that is context for the balance of this sidebar episode, which is about a series of weird American projects to grab Cuba in the years before the Civil War, which eerily prefigure the comical Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961. Ada Ferreira has a great chapter on these arrestingly similar episodes from those years. History always begins in the middle of something. Our story begins in the 1850s with the inauguration of Franklin Pierce in March 1853. By that time, the American interest in acquiring Cuba was not merely for its geopolitical position or, for that matter, its economic value in the abstract. The long-standing American interest now turned in part on Cuba's role in the Western Hemisphere's trade in human beings. Most of you know that effective January 1st, 1808, the United States banned the importation of new slaves, although smuggling of them persisted at some level all the way until the Civil War. The most common estimate is that roughly 50,000 enslaved people were imported illegally during that period. 
Great Britain banned its own Atlantic slave trade a few months earlier, in March 1807. Spain followed suit in 1811. But Cubans essentially refused to comply. A robust slave trade, technically illegal but open and notorious, persisted in Cuba for the entire period between Spain's ban and the American Civil War, much of it financed by American banks and shipping companies, primarily from the northern states where slavery itself had been abolished. The United States was also the main importer of Cuba's biggest cash crop, sugar, grown on plantations and refined in mills almost entirely by enslaved people. Franklin Pierce was a New Englander and a Democrat who believed that the abolitionist movement by then growing in power in the United States was an existential threat to the Union. He chose a wealthy cotton planter and slaveholder from Alabama, William Rufus King, as his running mate. King was both a fierce defender of slavery and an aggressive critic of Southerners, who were already beginning to talk of secession. In the election of 1852, the pro-Union and pro-slavery ticket of Pierce and King handily beat the Whig ticket of Winfield Scott and William A. Graham. Pierce would go on to sign both the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Fugitive Slave Act into law. The former permitted the expansion of slavery into Kansas if the local population approved it and the latter enlisted Northerners in the repatriation of escaped slaves to their owners. Both laws are now seen as early catalysts of the Civil War, for reasons to involve to go into here. The Pierce-King ticket campaigned on, among other things, the acquisition of Cuba. In his post-election victory parade, Farrar says that supporters had carried banners reading Pierce and Cuba. Pierce preferred to buy it from Spain rather than going to war to take it. But many Southerners, including perhaps Vice President King, were less concerned about the methods used to get Cuba. If Cuba could be turned into a state, or even better, several states, it would enable enough new senators to protect slavery in the United States for the foreseeable future. This business of gaming the composition of the Senate, again fashionable in certain circles, goes back a long way. The inauguration was, in Ferrer's words, the worst in the history of the United States. Pierce's 11-year-old son had died two months before in a train accident. The First Lady refused to attend her own husband's inauguration, maybe out of grief, but probably because she was angry that he had accepted the nomination in the first place. So, unenthusiastic First Ladies aren't a new thing either. Perhaps as a gesture to her, or perhaps out of embarrassment, Pierce canceled the traditional inaugural ball. Pierce himself appeared despondent during his inaugural address, and as he spoke, a heavy snowstorm opened up. That did not deter the first demonstration against a presidential inauguration in American history. As Pierce spoke, unemployed workers and anti-slavery demonstrators marched past. The Pierce inauguration was unusual in another respect. Vice President-elect William Rufus King wasn't in Washington. He was fighting tuberculosis and had traveled to Cuba on the advice of his doctor who had the idea that the heat and humidity of a sugar mill would help. This was actually a thing known at the time as 
the sugar cure. So it was that Vice President King would be sworn into office in Cuba on a vast sugar plantation wholly dependent on slave labor. King would not live long, and when that became clear, he returned to his plantation in Alabama and died the day after he got home, on April 18, 1853, having served as vice president only six weeks, and none of it in Washington. The election of Pearson King was, therefore, both fateful and symbolic in many ways. The question was, how did the potential acquisition of Cuba become such a powerful force in American politics? Now let's go to Ferrer for the immediate background on which I cannot improve. Quote, American statesmen have been dreaming about making Cuba American for decades. Jefferson had begun fantasizing about it at the dawn of the 19th century. In the 1820s, James Monroe and John Quincy Adams had given it serious consideration. The Monroe Doctrine emerged precisely out of such deliberations. But it was in the years leading up to King's unusual inauguration that the drive to annex Cuba to the United States grew more frenzied and plausible than ever. When the United States annexed Texas in 1845, many Americans fully expected that Cuba would be next. As the famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass lamented, the history of Cuba may be read in the past history of Texas. From other more powerful quarters, however, came determined calls for the acquisition of Cuba. Secretary of State James Buchanan, Vice President King's old friend, they shared a house in Washington, seemed to rub his hands in anticipation. Cuba is already ours. I feel it in my fingers' ends, he wrote in 1849. In Washington, a bi-Cuba lobby exploded into the political scene, led by Jane at McManus Casno, a New Yorker earlier prominent in Texas annexationist circles and increasingly invested in the acquisition of Cuba. President James Polk was more than happy to do his part, sending emissaries to Spain with an offer of up to $100 million for the purchase of Cuba. It would be grievously incorrect, however, to associate the drive to annex Cuba to the United States only with American expansionists. In fact, annexation was a major force in Cuban politics as well. Wealthy sugar planters saw incorporation into the United States as their salvation, their bulwark against British abolitionists and the likes of the poet Placido and hundreds of thousands of Cuban slaves. Joining the American Union as a slave state or two or three would guarantee the future of slavery in Cuba. Exile organizations in New York with strong financial ties both to Cuban sugar and American merchants lobbied hard for the annexation of Cuba to the United States. In fact, they were the ones who provided the funds that Polk offered to Spain as payment for Cuba. The Spanish government's refusal to sell Cuba to the United States dissuaded neither American expansionists nor Cuban annexationists. In fact, it gave the upper hand to the most militant among them, the filibusterers. Whatever association the term now has with Senate practice, back then it referred to the launching of ostensibly private expeditions against other nations. In this case, it involved expeditions to Cuba designed to secure immediate independence from Spain to be followed very soon after by annexation to the United States 
as had recently happened in Texas. The major figure on the Cuban side of the filibustering craze was Narciso Lopez. The Venezuelan-born Lopez had served in Spain's army against the independence movements there and relocated to Cuba after South American independence. In Cuba, he was appointed president of the military commission, the military court that tried allegedly political crimes. By the end of the 1840s, Lopez was a private citizen, eager to work with Americans to preserve slavery in Cuba and to make a fortune in the meanwhile. Among his American allies, the most enthusiastic and powerful were men such as John C. Calhoun, Monroe's old Secretary of War, former Vice President, and then U.S. Senator for South Carolina, John Quitman, Governor of Mississippi, Virginian Robert E. Lee, a decorated veteran of the Mexican-American War and later a general in the Confederate Army, and Jefferson Davis, U.S. Senator from Mississippi and later President of the Confederate States of America. With their support, Lopez organized three filibustering expeditions to Cuba. The majority of the recruits, the many foot soldiers of the invading force were Southern veterans of the recently ended Mexican-American War. For them, the experience of taking Texas from Mexico now served as a model for taking Cuba from Spain. Lopez promised them $8 a month, a bonus of $1,000 and 160 acres of land in Cuba if the expedition succeeded. Back to me. Ada Ferrer's claim that the experience of veterans of the Mexican-American War in, quote, taking Texas from Mexico now served as a model for taking Cuba from Spain seems like a leap to me, insofar as the Texas Revolution was fought in 1835 and 36, Texas was annexed in 1845, and the Mexican-American War in which these soldiers had fought was in 1846 and 48 and had more to do with California than Texas. However, not having gotten to any of that on the timeline, I confess I don't know enough to say for sure that she's overstating that narrow point. The larger point remains, though, that Texas remained a precedent that the Cuba filibusterers wished to emulate. The first expedition in 1849 was busted up by American federal agents and never put to sea. The second in 1850 was curiously important to history, but not because it succeeded. When it reached Cuba, the Spanish attacked the invaders just after their landing, and the Americans retreated back to their ships and came home. Ferreira describes the strange historical consequence of the second expedition. Quote, When the second expedition sailed to Cuba, the New York Sun newspaper flew a newly designed Cuban flag from atop its headquarters in Manhattan. The flag was red, white, and blue, with five stripes and one star, the star of Cuba, soon to join the 30 then present on the American flag. It was the first time a Cuban flag was ever flown, and it was flown in New York to signal Cuba's pending incorporation into the United States. Despite that history, it remains Cuba's flag today. Its annexationist origins, curiously absent. Back to me. Ferrer doesn't make the point explicitly, but Cuba had, and still has, its own lone star. As evocative evidence of the Texan precedent as one would want to have.
The third expedition, set for 1851, was the biggest. Troops across the South trained openly for the invasion, and the governor of Georgia supplied weapons from the state arsenal. The expedition included William Crittenden, the nephew of the U.S. Attorney General, as second-in-command. Lopez, Crittenden, and more than 400 soldiers set sail from New Orleans on August 3, 1851. Now back to Ferrer, quote, Stopping in Key West before sailing to Cuba, Lopez and his companions heard that all of western Cuba was in rebellion, and they hurried to get there. But the news was a trap, a fake story planted by the Spanish to entice the expedition to somewhere near Havana. When it landed, the Spanish were waiting. Crittenden was captured first with about 50 men. The Spanish made them kneel in groups of six, their backs to the firing squad. When it was Crittenden's turn, he allegedly refused and spoke words later reproduced all over the United States, quote, an American kneels only to his God and always faces his enemy. Lopez himself survived that first encounter, but with no prospects for reinforcements, the expedition's future was bleak. Hiding in the hills, he ended up having to eat his own horse roasted with corn and plantains. That's how I like my horse. Authorities captured and then quickly tried and condemned him. Just before his execution, he shouted, My death will not change the destiny of Cuba. Then he was garroted to death before a crowd. Back to me. The slaughter of the filibusterers and the widespread publicity of Crittenden's defiance outraged the American public and certainly helped elect the Pierce King ticket. But Pierce would fail to fulfill his promise to acquire Cuba. The Kansas-Nebraska Act and its ugly aftermath, on which he had expended his political capital, had reminded Northerners that slavery could yet expand beyond its then-current boundaries, and no amount of commercial opportunity or expansionist fervor would bring Northerners back into the fold. Interest in acquiring Cuba would go on hold until after the Civil War, and would not truly revive until the destruction of the battleship Maine in Havana's harbor, and the Spanish-American War, the moment when the United States acquired most of its overseas possessions. For a bit more on that from me, you might listen to our sidebar episode, Justice Gorsuch and the Insular Cases, which I put out in April. I hope you've enjoyed this somewhat unusual episode. As I said, I'm traveling almost every week until Christmas, nowhere as exotic as Cuba, so episodes will remain catch-as-catch-can. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast an awesome rating on Apple or following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>